All right, please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, and we will be in verses 13 and go all the way through verse 40 this evening. Title of the message, Little Flock, which already just has such a comforting tone. And I hope that this message will be a comfort to you. Um, Certainly there will be some points of conviction as well, but uh, I hope it will be a comfort. As believers, there are many things in life against which we must be on guard. Proverbs 4.23 exhorts us to keep or to guard our hearts with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. We are called by John in 1 John 5.21 to keep or guard ourselves from idols. Keep, uh, our, keep ourselves from idols. We are exhorted in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 to beware lest we be led away by idolatry. That word, guard yourself. This evening, we have a, another beware in our New Testament from the mouth of our Lord. A beware that is so basic, so fundamental, that it is one of the Ten Commandments which God gave to Israel on the foot of Mount Sinai. Yet a charge which can find its way into our hearts in a number of ways. The warning this evening is one that we are familiar with since in the morning we're going through Ecclesiastes. But to put it simply, Jesus warns us today about the desire for stuff and how this desire can cause us to lose out on what is truly important. And we'll hit some other ideas as well this evening beyond just covetousness. So we're going to explore the concept of covetousness, the danger of covetousness this evening, and then a mindset that would keep us from covetousness, from the scriptures. And we've got quite a bit to cover, verses 13 to 40, so let's dig in. In chapter 12 of Luke, beginning in verse 13, we read this, verse 13 and 14. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he, that would be Jesus, said unto him, Man... Who made me a judge or a divider over you? The scene is set with a conflict between a man and his brother. Somewhat reminiscent of the conflict that we saw earlier in the book of Luke between Martha and Mary. The man comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I need you to rebuke my brother. Speak to my brother and tell him that he must divide the inheritance with me. Presumably the man, uh, his brother, Uh, had control over the inheritance most likely because he was the firstborn or the elder brother. The man, it would seem, was not just asking Jesus to be an impartial arbiter to help them determine what the law said, but rather it seems as though this man that came up and requested this of Jesus thought he was being wronged. And he wanted Jesus to rebuke his brother for this wrong. Now, according to Jewish law, the elder brother was supposed to get a double portion. So if there were only these two brothers, the elder brother would get two-thirds and the younger brother would get one-third. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know who has been wronged. We don't know what the wrong is. And so we can't rightly judge the circumstance ourselves. And in fact, Jesus says a similar thing. Now, we know Jesus is omniscient because he is God, but his deity uh, was veiled. And so he gives a a somewhat, we might say, a human response here. He doesn't say, I don't know the situation, but he says, I've not been made your judge. I'm not the divider. I'm not the one who's supposed to do that. That's not my responsibility. 
Jesus is making it clear that he has no authority by which to speak to this situation. Now, again, don't get me wrong. Jesus has all authority. All authority was given to him in heaven and in earth. This is a human perspective. He says, look, this is not my job. I don't have this authority. You have not made me your judge. You have not made me your arbiter. You have not made me your divider. This is not my, my, my right to do. We as humans are so quick to interject our opinion into situations and to judge them. Saying what we would have done or what they should have done. Jesus is God. He has authority over all things. But from a human perspective, he did not have the information or the authority to be the one to pass judgment. So he didn't do it. We might be able to learn from Jesus' example there. But when this man said this, and Jesus of course knows his heart... It brought up another topic which Jesus did feel compelled to speak to. He didn't feel compelled to speak to whether or not or how things should be divided. But the attitude, the heart with which this man came and asked Jesus to rebuke his brother. Jesus says, but I'll speak to that. So we read in verse 15, and he said unto them, notice the them there, he's speaking to multiple people. Take heed. And beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the things, or in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Jesus speaks to whom we know not, maybe just the man and his brother, or maybe the whole multitude. And he says, beware of covetousness. The word covet means to strongly desire or to wish for something. Covetousness then is the act of strongly desiring or wishing for something. Now, it's important to understand that covetousness in the Bible is not always spoken of in a negative sense. Remember, we mentioned this morning when we were in the last little chunk of Luke, Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, that leaven is most usually spoken of in the negative sense, but not always. There was that one kingdom parable in which Jesus spoke of the believers and the church as the leaven in the world. In the same way, there are times where the Bible speaks of covetousness in a positive way. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us in a spiritual sense, just before that great love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, but covet earnestly the best gifts. Like anger or jealousy or any other emotion, there is a natural and virtuous outworking of that which God has given to us. There's a natural and virtuous outworking of covetousness when you deeply desire or long for the things of God. So when then does covetousness become evil, become sinful, become wrong? Well, coveting becomes a problem when the thing that we desire is something that is not ours to have. May I say that again? Coveting is sinful when the thing that we covet, the thing that we desire, is something that we are not given. It's not ours to have. We don't have the right or the ability to have it. Indeed, this is the essence of the command as we find it in the Ten Commandments. Oftentimes when we summarize the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment is just, Thou shalt not covet. But that's not actually explicitly what God told them. Notice what he says in Exodus 20, verse 17. Thou shalt not covet 
thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Thou shalt not covet is a nice and simple way to summarize the tenth and final commandment, but it is a little misleading because the command is, is not saying thou shalt not ever want things, but rather thou shalt not want things that are not yours to have. Now, in this way, it's specifically speaking of something that somebody else has that you don't have. Don't want what they have. Don't want their possessions. But it can go beyond that as well, as we'll see. And I say this way on purpose, this concept of not wanting what is not yours to have. Because when when I first wanted to define this, sinful covetousness, I defined it as wanting something that belongs to someone else. And from Exodus 20.17, that's a valid definition. But this isn't quite right. Sinful covetousness is not only wanting something that belongs to someone else. Sinful covetousness is wanting anything that is not my right to have, whether it belongs to someone else or not. And the reason why I'm careful to make this distinction is because as Jesus continues in his teaching today, he is not necessarily warning his followers against wanting the goods of their neighbors and friends about looking at his neighbor's wife and saying, wow, I want her. Or looking at his neighbor's ox and saying, wow, I could use an ox like that. I want that ox. I'm going to go get that ox. More so, he's warning them about the danger of wanting the goods of this world above the goods of heaven. See, because to a believer, this world is not ours to have. This world is not our home. We don't belong to the world. And the warning which Jesus will give is that because we do not love, we do not belong to the world, we should not crave the things of the world. That because we are children of God, this world is not ours to crave. It is not my right to want the things of this world. And that's covetousness. When I want that, which is not my right to to want. It's not mine to have. God has promised us many things, but he has not promised us the goods of this world. It's not my right to covet them. Paul would put it this way in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 and 7. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. This is the mindset. This is what Paul is saying. Look, we came in with nothing. We leave with nothing. That's not where gain comes from. Don't covet the things of the world. Sure, your neighbor doesn't have it, but you want it anyway. Well, it's not covetousness because it's not my neighbor's wife. It's not yours to have. then it's covetousness. If this world is not my home, then it is not given to me to crave the things which the world has to offer at the expense of the world which is to come. So in verse 15, Jesus says, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. It is this that Jesus warns against. Desiring the things of this life as the way to define our lives because man's life consists of far more than the abundance of goods. And in order to help him understand this, 
Jesus gives a parable in verses 16 to 21. He says this, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where, where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. Aha! I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all the, my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and not and is not rich toward God. Do you, do you catch the, the, the gist of the parable? Here we have a parable of a man who is wealthy. Now, this is not a bad thing. It's not a problem in itself. We know this. It's not money that's the root of all evil. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. And in his wealth and prosperity, the Bible says he brought forth plentifully. So we look into a scenario where this man has an unusually plentiful, what we would probably presume to be a harvest, some sort of agriculture. And he has so much increase that he doesn't have enough space in his barn to, to, to hold it all. And so he fills up his silos, his barns, they're bursting, and he still has left over. And he begins to ask himself, okay, I've got all this stuff. I've always done well for myself, but this is something special. What should I do with the extra? Now, the New Testament answer, Jesus' answer, Paul's answer, the right answer, the biblical answer is, give it away to those that need it. Invest the fruit of your increase in honoring God by blessing others. But on the contrary, the man pursues a different solution. The man pursues a covetous solution. Rather than say, give the excess beyond my needs to others, he says, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down the barns that I already have. And I'll build up bigger ones so that I can store everything that I've got. And then I have a particular end to this strategy. I'll store so much stuff that then I can retire early. And I can say, okay, soul, there's nothing left for me but to eat, to drink, and be merry for the rest of my days. And I can live at ease. And I don't have to worry about God anymore. And I don't have to worry about problems anymore because I have take care of it, taken care of it all myself. I'm living in comfort and relaxation because, uh, relaxation because I've acquired goods for many years. But then God actually comes into this parable. Remember, it's just a parable. God actually speaks. And he says to the man, Thou fool. Here you've been storing up for your future. Here you just tore down all these barns and paid all that money and put all that effort into building up bigger ones and storing more stuff. And you didn't even know that you were going to die tonight. And now what good are those possessions? Now who's going to have all that stuff that you've been storing up for no good reason? You can't take any of it with you. And it didn't build up spiritual rewards because you didn't give it away. You didn't do the Lord's work with it. You kept it for yourself. You hoarded it. And Jesus says, as the point of this parable, remember, parables always teach one primary truth. Everything else is just supporting. Parables teach one primary truth. And the primary truth is this. He gives it to us in this one. Isn't that nice? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So understand these two points in the parable. 
Jesus is not saying that it is wrong to be rich. We know that from the scriptures. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. The love of money is the root of all evil. Jesus contrasts a man who is laying up treasure on this earth at the expense of treasure in heaven with the man who in fact lays up treasure in heaven regardless of whether or not he has riches on this earth. It's not a sin to be at ease. It's not a sin to be wealthy. It's not a sin implicitly to retire early. It is a sin, however, for a man to hold earthly wealth and greed above the heavenly principles of giving to the needs of others. For a man to gain at the expense of his duty to do what God has called us to do, which is to distribute freely. It is a sin for man to invest all of his life in earthly wealth at the expense of heavenly priorities. Be they his wealth, be they his time, or even his abilities. And this parallel will, will be explained even more as Jesus teaches through these concepts in verses 22 through 40. And many of you will be very familiar with this passage in the Beatitudes of Matthew 6. So we pick up in verse 22 and Jesus says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body, what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body more than raiment. Jesus says something startling in its simplicity, if I may put it that way. Take no thought for the details of your life. Take no thought for what you shall eat or drink or the clothes that you'll put on. And then he makes a definitive statement because life is more than food and clothing. This is a call to a totally different way of looking at life. A totally different way of prioritizing life. Many a Christian approaches life thus. Let me get my material and physical needs under control. And then once my material and physical needs are under control, then I will begin to fit church in. And then I'll begin to fit the needs of others in with whatever's remaining. I do what I need to do and then I give God and I give others the scraps. If there are any scraps left. And if I'm feeling like it. And Jesus here presents a way of thinking which would compel us to turn that on its head. That while the unbelievers around us prioritize themselves and then fit in what they can, what you and I as citizens of a heavenly home should do is prioritize our home. Prioritize the spiritual and then let God deal with the peripheries of the physical. You deal with being right before God, with serving God with all your heart. Uh, you deal with doing exactly what God asks you to do. Hang on here. My crackling. Let's try that. Button myself back up here. You deal with what God wants you to do. You deal with God's priorities for you. You deal with the spiritual. You deal with serving the Lord with all your heart, soul, and might. You deal with going where He tells you to go, doing what He tells you to do, yielding what He tells you to yield, keeping what He tells you to keep. You deal with that, and then you leave all the rest of that stuff, all that little stuff, like eating and drinking and and, and clothing, leave all that to Him. That's just That's just the peripheries. That's just stuff. Don't worry about that stuff. This is what Christ says as he continues in verses 24 to 26. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap 
which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them, how much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? See, the birds of the air don't plant. They don't harvest. You've never seen a little bird with a, with a plow going across, back and forth in the field, plowing the field. Has a little mouse that he's whipping as he's plowing the field. You've never seen a bird do that. I hope you haven't. If you have, I'll have to talk about that later. And how much more important are you? If God takes care of the birds, if God makes sure the birds are fed, how much more important are you than a bird? Do you have the faith to believe that if you put spiritual priorities first, if your time is, if you, if you give your time to spiritual priorities first, if you give your wealth to spiritual priorities first, if you give your abilities to spiritual priorities first, the first fruits principle, do you have the faith to believe that God can handle the rest? He can put the rest in place? Now, God is not saying that I can go to church, give money, go door knocking, and then come home, sit on the couch, eat potato chips, and the delivery guy for random restaurants in town will just knock on my door and say, hey, I felt this strange compulsion to bring you orange chicken tonight and some lo mein. Hey, I have this pizza and I just felt like I need to give you this pizza. Well, because I've gone to church and because I'm giving the first fruits of, of my, my, my wealth, uh, because I, I go door knocking on a Thursday night, because I do these things, then I don't have to work. God's gonna take care of food and clothing, so, uh, there's just gonna be a, you know, a bunch of food left on my, my doorstep and a bunch of clothing left on my doorstep and, and I don't have to worry about it. That's not what God's saying. That's not what the Bible's saying here. You know that. God's not saying that I will wake up every morning and find food in my fridge just because I go to church. Just because I'm putting the spiritual first. God no doubt uses miraculous interventions to provide for the needs of his children. But the most common way that God provides for us is by giving us work. Right? Fathers. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, if you prioritize the spiritual, if you do all those things that you're supposed to do, if you're faithful uh, to, to be in church, if you're faithful to obey the word of God as God has revealed it to you, if you're faithful to give the first fruits of that which you have, your time and your abilities and your talents, if you're faithful to submit yourself to the scriptures and to invest in the spiritual as God has called you to invest in the spiritual, then God will take care of the rest. He'll, he'll give you what you need. He'll take care of it. What Christ is asking you to do is to treat these basic necessities of life, food, drink, clothing, the same way you would often treat what, what I call, what we call at Legacy Baptist Church, your unchangeables. I cannot, by thinking, by fretting, or by worrying, get my body to grow any taller. That's what Jesus says here. Which of you, by taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? Can you add to your stature? Can you physically grow through the power of positive thinking? There's some health and wealth preachers that might think so, but it's not true. The power of positive thinking cannot get you to grow. It doesn't work that way. I cannot think about taking, uh, think about adding a cubit to my height, that's 18 inches-ish, and then it just happens. And Jesus is saying, 
if you can't add a cubit to your height by thinking, fretting, and worrying over your height, then don't think, fret, and worry over your food, your raiment, or your, or, or your drink. Because I'm going to take care of those in the same way I'm taking care of your height. That when you look in the mirror and you say, I am what I am, I am this tall, and there's nothing I can do about being this tall, so I'm not going to worry about it because it's an unchangeable. And that's what we, we teach here. You know, there are unchangeables that you have. Your smile, your hair, your height, your build, your foot size, your eyes, your beauty, or lack thereof. I don't have hair anymore. It's just a part of who I am. It's, it, it, it's, it's the way God made me. That's okay. I could fret about it. I could invest a bunch of money in trying to change it. I could go out of my way to, to reverse it. But you know what? It's an unchangeable. It's the way God's made me. Why? Why should I? Why should I change my appearance? Why should I invest all of this money in stuff to make me look better or, or, or to make me uh, uh, um, uh, look more dignified or, or, or more handsome or whatever it might be? Why should I do that? They're unchangeable. It's the way God made me, right? Jesus said, can you think about food, drink, and raiment the same way? That you're not going to fret about it because just as you cannot add one cubit to your stature, then... So, so, so you don't think about it. So you don't fret about it. Can you just not fret about your food and your raiment? Treat the necessities of your life in the same way you treat your unchangeables. My priority is supposed to be on the things of Christ. So God, I will trust you to provide for me a job that will not interfere with your call upon my life and that meets my needs. Or that you and your love and provision will meet them in another way. Because you've promised to do so. I'm going to do what's right. This is the charge upon us if we have the faith to receive it and to believe it. Jesus continues in verses 27 and 28. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, Excuse me, which, um, here, I'm, I'm quoting, it's, it's in my head from Matthew. Let's read Luke together. If then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? Jesus gives a second illustration here, one within the context of clothing rather than directly in food. If God raised the flower so that even Solomon and all his wealth and all of his grandeur, we talked about him a little bit a while ago, that his men uh, that, that followed him, he had hundreds that followed him and they would actually have gold dust sprinkled in their hair. They were beautiful. They were, they were strong. They were comely. They were every, they were men's men. Uh, they, they, they were uh, magnificently arrayed. The women were magnificently arrayed, gold dust in their hair. And he says, if, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like a lily of the field. Which, by the way, gives us insight into how God sees man's attempts at magnificence. Man looks and says, look how pretty I am. With my fabrics and my colors and my precious jewels and gold. And God says, you look nice, but have you looked closely at a lily lately? Have you stared at the beauty with which I clothed that lily? You look okay, but you don't hold a candle to my lilies. And if God will clothe 
plants, which spring up for a little while and then they wither and die. If God will take the time to make flowers beautiful, even though flowers only last for a little while, how much more do you think he will do it for you if you will but trust him? If you will place your priorities where they really matter. And notice Jesus' little interjection here at the end. O ye of little faith. Jesus said in Luke 9, verse 41, O faithless and perverse generation, speaking of the disciples. Jesus said after the winds and waves obeyed his voice in Luke 8, 25, Where is your faith? And now he says, if you cannot prioritize me, if you cannot trust that I will take care of your essentials so that you can do what I've called you to do and not allow your fear over what you, over what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or how you're going to be clothed to erode your ability to serve me as I've called you. Then you have no faith. Let God prioritize your needs. You prioritize God. He continues in the commandment in verses 29 to 31. He says, And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of a doubtful mind, for all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather, seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. One of the things that I believe is so indicative of the weakness of our faith in this generation is this concept. The fact that so many Christians of this generation share the economic outlook of the unbelieving world. Christians are a part of the rat race, worrying about money, getting into debt, seeking after things. If you look at the financial and uh, the financial choices, the priority choices of a, of a believer and the financial and the priority choices of an unbeliever, oftentimes they will look no different. And this is an, an indication of the weakness of the faith of this generation of the church. Jesus says, don't worry about food and clothing and drink. This is what the nations of the world seek after. This is their endless pursuit, their pursuit of stuff. Your pursuit should be the pursuit of God. God knows what you need. And if you will get down on your knees and ask Him, He will give you what you need. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Yours is to pursue God. Yours is to seek the kingdom of God. The other things, the material concerns, the worries, the needs, those things will be added unto you. The job will come. The provision will come. God will do His part. God will take care of you if you do your part, if you follow His way. And may I just say, if you want to know why the church is so impotent, so weak in culture today, this is a big part of it. Because when we have needs, we go to the same places that the world goes. When we have needs, we go to the insurance plans and we go to the government and we go to these things. And while these things have their place, I'm not preaching against them this evening. Their particular place is actually helping the needy of this world. The government's particular place in helping the needy really ought to be the people who have rejected the church. Because as far as you and I are concerned, the place where you ought to be seeking your help is right here. Because this is God's ordained method. This is God's will. This is how God provides. 
See, you're not of this world. And when we get in a pinch, what do we fall back on first? When we get in a pinch, are the first things to fall away the things of God? Instead of praying and waiting for the salvation of the Lord, we abandon the Lord, say, Lord, carest thou not that we perish? And we row with all our might, throwing everything overboard. And the world is not convinced of the power of the gospel to change lives because we don't look that different from them. And the world is not convinced of the power of God to provide for our needs because we don't give God the chance to provide for our needs. We live in a materialistic culture where the, 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 the degree to which we need to be provided for is already so small. And then every time we fall back on hard times, we don't even go to Him. We fall back on every one of the lifelines that every unbeliever has to fall back on as well. And so the world looks at the church and says, look, they're falling back on the same lifelines as we, we do. Look, they're fretting about the same things we do. Look, they're in the rat race just as we are. Look, they're in debt just like we are. Look, they're, they're, they're doing all these things and they look just like us. So, so what's this thing about God providing? Is this God providing? Is God providing to you through your, your, your unsustainable debt? Is God providing for you through all of these things that I can get to so that I have all of these things too? And so I can say God's providing for me. So why do I need to accept Christ? He's already doing these things for me. It would be much more... The dividing line would be much more clear if we were in a culture of lack. But we aren't. And so the church is weak. But let us turn our eyes back to the text because while there is a rebuke indicated by those words, O ye of little faith, can I begin to turn our hearts here? It's a very gentle rebuke. Jesus is not standing up wagging his finger at them. He's carefully and lovingly asking them to put away their fear and their anxiety and trust Him. He is coming alongside of them and saying, look, you're fretting. Kind of like He said to Martha. Martha, Martha, thou art careful over much. He's being very kind and compassionate here. And notice what He says. And we know this because look at verse 32. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I don't know that there are any more tender words in our whole Bible. Fear not, little flock. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Jesus says this not in anger, but in love and compassion. Desire to see you content. Your God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he looks at his children in loving compassion as they run themselves ragged, trying to gain those things which our loving father has told us he will gladly give to us himself. And we're fretting and we're worrying and we're getting ulcers and we're being thrown into fits of depression. And Jesus is looking at us and he says, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Stop being afraid. Stop being anxious. Stop trying and start trusting. The kingdom of heaven is already yours. Put your effort where it'll do the most good and don't worry about this other stuff. Stop investing in this world. Stop running the rat race of this world. Stop putting all your worries and fears on this world. Let God deal with that and you invest in the kingdom because it is your Father's good pleasure to give that to you. For several years before God provided our house, 
my wife and I rented homes. And in those rentals, we never wanted to invest in them. We never wanted to decorate, to paint the walls, to hang up pictures, to plant a garden. All of those things that we wanted to do, we didn't want to do in those rentals because it's not our own. Why paint the walls of a place that's not your own? Why spend the time and the money doing something that is not going to benefit you in the long term? Let's just save our money now and we'll invest in a house when the Lord provides one. This is what Jesus is telling you. This world is not your own. And in love and compassion, he urges you to stop investing all of your emotional and physical energies in this world, in its priorities, in its concerns, in fretting and worrying and gaining in this life. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God wants to provide for you in this life, and he has a kingdom waiting for you. So fear not. Well, then what should we do? Jesus says in verse 33, Sell ye that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in heaven that faileth not, where no thief approaches, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What does a faithful Christian do? If we're not going to worry and fret about this life, if we're not going to put all our energies into this life, if we're not going to be a part of the rat race, if we're not going to be a part of all the the the, the, the frets and the, the concerns and the dangers and uh, I've got to provide for this and I've got to provide for that and I've got to have this much of a nest egg and I've got to have all of these things in place or else. And so we work ourselves ragged and we worry ourselves ragged. If that is not what we're supposed to do, then what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to put it all on the altar. Jesus says, sell your junk and give that money to others and lay up treasure in heaven instead of on this earth where your bags won't deteriorate, where the thieves can't steal it, where the moth can't corrupt it. Invest your time, invest your money, invest your abilities in the eternal and rest in God. And then leave everything else to God. Because where you invest is where your heart is. Did you know that? Trace your time on any given day, on any given week. Trace your time. Where your time is, that's where your heart is. If your time is in amusements, that's where your heart is. If your time is inordinately in in a job, money is where your heart is. Trace your money. Where your money is, that's where your heart is. If your money is devoted to you and your things and your wants and your toys and your gizmos, and your amusements and your enjoyments, that's where your heart is. It's in this world. Trace your abilities, where you spend your energy. That's where your heart is. If your energy is spent on yourself above all, your heart is in this world. I'm not saying you're not a believer. I'm saying that your heart is in this world. Trace what you have. Where are you investing? Where is your heart? I fear there is not a man or a woman in this room, myself included, who likes what they see when they consider these things, or at least in total likes what they see. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Then how should we live? Verses 35 and 36. Let your loins be girded about, and and your lights burning, and ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord, when he will return from the wedding. That when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Live life, Jesus says, in busy 
anticipation. Live life in busy anticipation. Don't sell what you have to give alms and then go sit up on a hill and stare up for God to come. Put everything you have on the altar. If God says sell it, sell it. If God says use it, use it. If God says give it, give it. And be ready every moment to serve. Have your loins girt about. In the Hebrew way of saying, be dressed and ready to work. They would gird up their loins, that meaning that, that the men would take their skirts, which they wore, and they would bring it up and they would tuck it in so that they'd have free motion of their legs to be able to function. He says, be ready. Ha- be ready to run at any moment. Be ready to go at any moment. Have your lights burning. Be always ready to burn. Be always ready for, for people to come. Be always ready to share the, the, the testimony. Be always ready. The idea would be, as he gives this, this uh, analogy of the wedding, that you need to be ready to serve your master. Be like those who serve their Lord in eager anticipation, and when he knocks, you are ready to open. The illustration is that of an attendant. That when the master is away from the house, the attendant's duty is still on his master, right? The attendant stays at the house, the master goes out, but the attendant's duty is still to the master. The house is locked up until the master gets home, and if you're doing your duty, the moment the master's carriage or cart, or as we would say, Today, the moment his limo, uh, for, for those that might have attendance such as this, the moment he pulls up, you ought to have that door unlocked and ready to go. And the moment he gets out and he comes toward the door, that door ought to be open and he ought to be able to walk in that door without even having to knock. Because even while he was gone, you were watching for him. Your loins were girt, your light was on, the light was ready for him, your, your loins were, your, your loins were girded about, you were ready to work, you weren't relaxing, you weren't wasting your time, you weren't doing your own thing, you were keeping your mind on the master even when he was gone. So that the moment he arrives, you jump up and you're ready to go and he doesn't even have to ask you did everything he asked you to do. You open the door immediately. He came in. You got it. You get his coat. He goes up and he does what he needs to do because you have taken care of him. You've attended to him. You don't want to know who's the bad attendant? The bad attendant is the attendant that the master leaves and he says, okay. And he goes and he sits on the couch and he grabs his bag of potato chips. And he sits there and he eats the bag of potato chips and then he falls asleep and the master gets home. And the door is locked, and the master has to knock, dun, 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 and then you wake up, and oh yeah, okay, here, master's home, let's go, let's do this. And you go to the door, and you get the door, and you unlock it, and you open it, and you get all the crumbs off of your face from the potato chips. You're disheveled, you're not presentable, you're not ready for the master to come. Jesus says, be like an attendant, ready to serve. The best among us is the man who at every moment is seeking ways to serve the God of heaven and is always ready to minister. At every moment, he's ready to do something. His, his, his wallet is ready. When God says give, you, you just, you attend to the master. God wants me to give you this. When God says tell, you attend to the master. God wanted me to tell you this. When God says serve, you jump up and you say, God wants me there. When God says go, you go. When God says sell, you sell. When God says stay, you stay. When God says listen, you listen. When God says read, you read. When God says pray, you pray because you're an attendant. Your light is burning. Your loins are girt. And you are ready to do whatever the master has asked you to do. Jesus says, blessed are those servants, verse 37 and 38, whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them.
And if he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so, blessed are those servants. Blessed are the servant who, day or night, early or late, is attending upon his Lord. He is always watching. He is always ready. In Jewish custom, when people needed to uh, uh, remain awake or vigilant throughout the night, there were three watches. There was a watch from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., a watch from from, uh, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., and then a watch from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. The night was uh, the night was from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. The day was from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So a night watch would be four watches of three hours. Now in Roman system, it was actually switched to, excuse me, in Jewish system, it was three watches of four hours. In the Roman system, it was four watches of three hours. Either way, Jesus emphasizes that those deep, late Night watches. Even when men are tired, even when the night is slow, a good good servant is ready to attend the needs of his master. In other words, a good servant is ready to, when God says give, to give even when it's his last dollar, not just his first dollar. A good servant is ready to go when God says go, to go even when he's exhausted. A good servant is ready to sell when God says sell, even if he's not sure what that really means for him. A good servant is ready to do when God says do, even at the late hours of the night. This servant is not selfish. The servant is not negligent. The servant who does not hold his own priorities above those of his masters, this is a good servant. And this is what we are called to be spiritually every day of our lives. So Jesus concludes with this exhortation in verses 39 and 40. And this know that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Jesus actually changes the scene here. It's not quite the same idea anymore. So don't try to carry what we just said all the way through into these last two verses. It gets a little bit muddied if you do that. He changes the scene from attendance, waiting for his master to come home, to the master of the house that's watching for a thief. And there's no doubt that a man who knows a thief will come will stay up to protect his belongings, right? There's no doubt if a man knows a thief is going to come, he'll stay up. Have you ever noticed, I don't know if you've ever had somebody coming to visit you and they came in late. My parents drive up from time to time and sometimes they get in a little bit late at night or a missionary comes in pretty late at night. And have you ever noticed that when somebody is coming and you are anticipating someone coming, it's much easier to stay awake because of that anticipation? Surely if a man knows that a thief is coming to his house that night, it would not be a problem for him to watch. But here's the thing. You don't know when God will return. Much less when God will take you home. God is actually likened to the thief here. Not in morality, okay? Not in morality. God is not saying... The Bible is not saying God is a thief. But God is likening the concept of a thief coming when he anticipates no man knowing, coming and startling people, coming... Coming without without warning anyone, right? Thieves don't warn people. You don't get a call and say, excuse me, hi, this is your local thief. I just wanted to let you know that I'm going to case your house today. And I'm hoping that I can find a good time to steal from your house next week. If you would be so kind as to help me out in this matter, I would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. 
Have a good day. Thieves don't do that. They come at the time that you would least expect. They come hoping that you won't be ready. Right? That's the parallel. God, we don't know when God's going to come. If we knew when God was going to come, then like the good man of the house, then we'd get ourselves ready, right? If we, if you knew that God was going to come at, at, at um, 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, you'd have some cleaning to do, wouldn't you? Not your house. That wouldn't matter anymore. You'd be calling people up saying, hey, I just want to tell you I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that to you. I shouldn't have done that to you. Hey, that many years ago, I took that from you. That was wrong. Forgive me. Hey, I, 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 I said these evil things about you. I shouldn't have. You'd be cleaning yourself up, getting ready for the master to arrive. But you don't know when he's coming. The good man of the house, if he knew when the thief was coming, sure, he'd bar the house. He'd be up. He'd be watching. He'd be waiting. He'd be ready. But see, you don't know. The good man doesn't know when the thief is going to come. So he needs to be ready at all times. He needs to have attendance at all times. He needs to have preparations at all times. He needs to have his doors locked at all times. Because the thief could come at any moment. That's what Jesus is saying here. You need to be ready at every moment. Because you don't know which moment Christ will come. Or which moment death will usher you into eternity. Are you ready? Are you watching? Are you a good servant? Are you attending unto your Lord? Or are you covetous? Taking that which is not yours to have, your time, your money, your possessions, your talents, your people, your this, your that. Are you busy fretting and worrying about those things that don't really matter? They're in this life. They're not in the life to come. You won't, you can't take them with you. You'll leave them here. They'll be destroyed. Or are you investing where the investment truly matters? Five applications and I'm going to make it brief. I'm not going to say a lot. Yeah, right, Pastor. No, really, I'm not going to say a lot. Okay, I might, but probably not. Five applications as we close. Number one, beware of covetousness. Your life is far more than what you own. And you need to know that. Covetousness is when you desire that which is not yours to have. Have you taken things that God says, look, that's not yours to have? Have you ever bought something and then gotten that pit in your stomach that says, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. God could have used that money somewhere else. Or have you ever done that, wasted your time, watched a movie, played a video game, gone to that place, done that thing, and at the end say, wow, imagine what I could have done with the, for the Lord. You know what? Church had an event tonight and I skipped it so I could sit at home and eat potato chips on the couch. That's covetousness. You're taking that which is not yours to take. Time. Beware of covetousness. Number two. Take no thought for your life. Are you consumed with the same rat race as the world around you? Do you see your own efforts as the end all of your ability to provide for yourself and your family? Is your fallback plan other men, systems that are erected, that are wholly outside of the comprehension of what God has done through His church? Have you placed a priority for the material above the priority for the spiritual because you think it needs to be this way in the world in which we live? It's just the way it is. It's the way it has to be. It's the way the world works. Are you willing to do it God's way? To stop fretting about the necessities of life? To stop being a part of the rat race and do it God's way? Trust Him. 
Are you willing to step out in faith and seek God's kingdom first and then trust that the rest will be added unto you? The Bible says it. Number three. Fear not, little flock. Do you trust God's love for you so that you can live in this world but be not of this world? Do you have the faith to be able to live without fear and anxiety, to fear not, knowing that the kingdom of heaven is yours to inherit? Do you feel free to invest in the eternal at the expense of the material because you know that the material is only temporary and the eternal is, in fact, forever? Fear not, little flock. Number four, sell all that you have and give alms. Is what you possess yours or God's? Is it all on the altar ready to use? If God said, go to the ends of the world, would you go? If God asked you to wake up every morning not knowing where the day's meals would come from, could you trust that? Could you trust Him? If God asked you to live day by day in faith and joy, could you do it? And fifth and finally... Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Are you prepared to give, prepared to yield, prepared to serve, prepared to shine at any time, day or night? Are you attending upon the will of your master, even though your master is absent? Are you living for his return, though you know not when it will be, or will you be surprised? Have you left the light on for your master, ready and willing to do whatever he might require of you, whenever he might require it? Or are you living a lazy, apathetic, self-centered Christian life? If Christ took us home right now, would you be ready? Let's close in prayer. Father, pray for God's people. I ask that you would help us to be aware of covetousness, to fear not. To give all that we have to you. Help us to be devoted in every way. Help us to be watching. Help us to be waiting. Help us to be serving. May you be pleased with our response. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.